Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. My name is David Azarad. I'm the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics and the AWC Family Foundation Fellow here at the Heritage Foundation. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation for this panel discussion in our Preserve the Constitution series. The freedom of the press, as all Americans know, is enshrined in the First Amendment. A free press is a necessary component of Republican self-government and a hallmark of a free society. That is not in question. In fact, it's a non-negotiable. Free speech, however, is not the exclusive prerogative of the press. The First Amendment, you will remember, protects the free speech rights of all Americans, not just those who so happen to have an MA in journalism. The press, in other words, is itself subject to free speech, just like everyone else's. Journalists, however, do not take well to criticism, and I say this as a recovering journalist myself. There is a tendency in the media to equate criticism of the press, however well-founded, with an attack on the freedom of the press itself. But I think you can be committed to free speech while attacking those who abuse it. What's more, the freedom of the press, like all freedoms, is not without limits. There are no prior restraints on publication. Those days are thankfully long behind us. But the press is responsible for what it says, especially if it defames an individual. Libel laws are also an integral part of a free society. In the 1964 landmark Supreme Court ruling of New York Times v. Sullivan, the Supreme Court considerably raised the burden of proof for public officials who were seeking damage for libel to the standard of actual malice. This standard has in effect granted the press near blanket immunity and thus considerably expanded its powers. Now, Justice Clarence Thomas has recently expressed interest in revisiting the standard that the court articulated in Sullivan. He described that standard as, quote, almost impossible to satisfy. Today, we take up the question implicitly raised by Justice Clarence Thomas. Do the present limits placed on the press serve the common good? And we have assembled, pardon me, a distinguished panel to discuss and debate the matter, because at the Heritage Foundation, we like to have debates on these difficult and contentious questions. Speaking first will be my colleague, Arthur Millick, who will set up the framework through which we should think about the power of the press. Arthur is the associate director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics here at the Heritage Foundation, and he conducts research on America's founding principles. He also gives talks on the tenets of the American political traditions, 
to the public at large and public officials here in Washington. He has written in a variety of outlets, including an essay I would commend to your attention. He published an essay on Benjamin Franklin's critique of the freedom of the press and national affairs a few years ago. It's excellent. Arthur will be followed by Libby Locke, who will argue against the Sullivan ruling. Libby is a highly accomplished defamation lawyer and commercial litigator who devotes her practice to representing clients who are facing high-profile reputational attacks. In the courtroom, Libby has, was lead trial counsel for Nicola Ramo in a defamation action against Rolling Stone magazine, in which he secured a $3 million jury verdict for the false and defamatory article about an alleged gang rape at the University of Virginia. Outside the courtroom, some of Libby's biggest defamation wins are stories the public will never hear about. She has killed flawed articles, storylines, and broadcast segments in outlets including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, and the Dr. Oz Show. Last but not least will be Lee Levine, who will argue for the Sullivan ruling. Lee has represented media clients in various First Amendment cases for more than 35 years. He has twice argued for media defendants before the Supreme Court, litigated in the courts of more than 20 states and the District of Columbia, and appeared in most federal appeals court and in the highest courts of 10 states. Chambers USA called him, quote, the greatest First Amendment attorney in the United States. And with that, please join me in welcoming our panel. And um, it's an honor to be here uh, with my fellow panelists. Uh, we are friends of the free press because it's absolutely necessary to Republican government. You cannot have political liberty without a free press. But contained in its principle is a corrosive side. The press's behavior over the past several years is driving people away from it. And in creating great distrust, it loses its salutary effects on society. The 2016 presidential election, for example, was a shocking moment in which many Americans witnessed much of the press doing all in its power to select a president on behalf of the American people. These actions disclose a tacit opinion that the press has of itself, not merely the fourth estate, but the creator of would-be rulers, and therefore themselves the master, or at least the kingmaker. The news media often thinks that the freedom of the press refers to it alone, and that its freedom is absolute, for which reason they think that they are beyond even criticism. This is part of the reason the press hates President Trump so much. He questions their motives and accuracy. Today, there are considerably fewer restraints on the press than likely at any time in US history. In practice, this means that the press is restrained only by its conscience or sense of shame. The nation ends up relying on this sense of shame to prevent the spread of falsehoods or irresponsible reporting. This afternoon, I'd like to limit myself to discussing the observation of two penetrating thinkers, Benjamin Franklin and Alexis de Tocqueville, who can help us understand our current circumstances. I don't do this for antiquarian or merely scholarly reasons. They saw with great clarity both the good and the ill that comes from the freedom of the press. So to develop uh, our analysis, we should take a step back and look at the press's original purpose. The press is meant to attack dogmas in both science and politics. We might first recall that the freedom of the press does not refer to the news media alone. It also means the publication of science and its circulation, 
And this is arguably the most successful element of the freedom of the press, so successful, in fact, that it's been forgotten. The second purpose and benefit is what we all already have in mind, which is attacking dogmas in politics. This means that a free press would defend political liberty against its enemies, like tyranny, monarchy, and slavery. The popular press, or the news media as we call it today, would have an essential role in preserving our form of government. It would compel the responsibility of government to serve the public faithfully by vigilantly guarding against corruption and abuses. And Tocqueville goes even further. He says that newspapers not only guard freedom, but they maintain civilization. Even the press doesn't speak so highly of itself. <laughs> newspapers bring together local communities to help rule themselves politically. This simply cannot happen without newspapers, Tocqueville says. So as we already know, very much is at stake in having a good press. The press, as it was understood by the founders, is motivated to act viciously, attacking false scientific knowledge, false political dogma, and uncovering corruption for the sake of preserving Republican government. This is good. But just like the press should compel government to be responsible, so too did some laws compel the press to be responsible itself. So that's the good. Uh, here's uh, the bad. Uh, neither Franklin nor Tocqueville were naive about the possible bad effects of the press and, in fact, predicted many of them. As Tocqueville says, he loves the freedom of the press, I'm quoting him, out of consideration for the evils it prevents much more than for the good it does. Mm. Franklin agrees, and no American founder had more experience in the press than him. He became a multimillionaire through the press, and he spent his entire career in it. And I want to lay out for you in broad terms Franklin's critique. Uh, first, Franklin observes that the press often compel, uh, excuse me, the press often attempts to imitate the dignity and the procedures of a court of law. It holds mock trials, passes judgment, sentences, holds mock executions, and condemns people to infamy. It does all of this on its own discretion, by picking and choosing its own causes and enemies. It does this mainly by, I'm quoting him, receiving and promulgating accusations through which it can condemn anyone. It can condemn both public and private individuals and institutions. But while it imitates a court of law, unlike a court, it is not limited by a jurisdiction. It has a roaming jurisdiction. Nor is it restrained by any intelligible pre precedent, like a court of law is. Indeed, in its actions, it sometimes, Franklin says half-jokingly, uh, it behaves like the Spanish Inquisition. No grand jury evaluates the truth of the press's accusations, nor is there a swearing to the truth by the accusers. Instead, anonymous, unverified statements are sufficient to move public opinion. And if they prove false, these individuals go unpunished. Nor is the accused's reputation ever fully restored. In conducting these mock trials, the press has a remarkable power over citizens' minds. Franklin writes, the proceedings of the press are sometimes so rapid that an honest, good citizen may find himself suddenly and unexpectedly accused and in the same morning judged and condemned and sentence pronounced against him that he is a rogue and a villain. This is what happened to the Covington kids. And this is the ongoing mock trial of President Trump. The press, of course, cannot burn you at the stake as the Inquisition could, but it can intimidate you. And in doing this, it can compel belief, 
all while claiming to persuade your reason. Franklin sees in this power the capacity to crush the voice of reason in citizens, making them browbeaten and partisan. The freedom of the press, in an odd way, can lead to the unfreedom of the mind for Franklin. Given these massive powers, Franklin is interested in figuring out who composes this class of journalists. We should remember at the time this was a new human type emerging. He says that in the past, nations had restrictions on who could enter into the publishing world. In some places, individuals were chosen by an executive or a council on the basis of that person's virtues. So let's say their education, their prudence, their intellectual abilities. Or in some cases, the position was inherited and therefore tradition or honor would restrain them. But when the press is open to anyone, it will often attract a certain type. And here, uh, uh, Franklin cheekily observes, this type is the one in 500 who will have the privilege of accusing and abusing the other 499 parts at their pleasure. He fears that this class may attract individuals animated by, the, by this desire. Surely there will be those like Franklin himself who care about the public good. But what he fears is this new attitude and its secret motive will unify a new class which will hold too much sway over society. Yet despite these abuses, the press continues to have enormous power. That's because, Franklin says, there's a natural support in it, in us. And that is uh, human resentment, the public's taste for destroying and humiliating others. Accordingly, the press appeals especially, I'm quoting him, to those who, despairing to rise into distinction by their virtues, are happy if others can be depressed to a level with themselves. The press loves exposing private vices for the satisfaction of the public appetite for such things. It flatters the public by saying, look at these people. They're greedy, ruthless, immoral. You can look down on them while pretending that you're nothing like them. Today, the press even says, your president is merely insane and mentally unhinged. He is certainly not a very stable genius. <laughs> Thus emerges a coterminous relationship of mutual dependence. On the one hand, the press wants to rule the public mind. On the other hand, the public allows this because of its desire to be flattered, for its jealousies to be satisfied, while being grateful that the press doesn't target them. And here is where Tocqueville picks up the thread. He's astonished that while America is so free, so stable, so prosperous, unlike his home country, France, he says that America's press has the same destructive tastes as in France and the same violence without the same causes for anger. Allow me to read you a short passage from a local newspaper which Tocqueville quotes in Democracy in America, which I suspect he invented, uh, but it's exemplary. Um, he says this is from a local newspaper. In all this affair, the language held to by President Jackson has been that of a heartless despot occupied solely with preserving his power. Ambition is his crime, and he will find his penalty in it. He has intrigue for a vocation, and intrigue will confound his designs and wrest his power from him. He governs by corruption, and his guilty maneuvers will turn to his confusion and shame. The hour of justice approaches. Soon he will have to give back what he has won. To repent is not a virtue that he has ever been given to his heart to know. <laughs> uh, this could have been written yesterday. <laughs> But we should pay very special close attention when Tocqueville gives examples like this, especially when he invents them. 
Um, what this little quote says is that President Jackson stands too tall vis-a-vis -vis the press. He must repent, as they are the only confessor. In demanding this, the press pretends to rule for the sake of the people, but it actually agitates them ceaselessly and is willing, quote, to alter and denature the facts for the sake of its own significance. What moderated this power, at least in Tocqueville's time, was that America was a decentralized nation. In the America of Tocqueville's time, he says, there, was, uh, there are more local associations and newspapers than anywhere on earth. That's because the more a free people administers its own affairs locally, the more newspapers are necessary for them to communicate with one another to govern themselves. Tocqueville's America was fragmented, which is to say it's not ruled by a centralized authority. When a people is still free, Tocqueville thought the press could cure what he calls individualism through newspapers. This is not the rugged individualism we often extol. Rather, he means the increasing isolation and weakness of citizens, such that they are ruled almost solely by public opinion and eventually a vast state. His lesson is this. The more numerous are newspapers, the healthier a society. But, Tocqueville warns, the more centralized the nation, the fewer the newspapers. In fact, the decentralization of newspapers prevents the unity of the press from unifying as a class onto itself and ruling the nation. But looking at France of his time, he fears that there can even develop a unity between the press as a whole and a political party. As he says of France, under these conditions, the power of the press will be, quote, almost without bounds. It can compel governments into truces and perhaps even topple them. It's not outlandish to imagine, even in America, that the major press organs can at some point come to a tacit agreement to unify among themselves as they, as they nearly did in the run-up to, to the 2016 election. But thank goodness for the internet. A few words to conclude. For Tocqueville, moderating the abuses of the press means more newspapers, or in our time, the internet. Regrettably, there's now a movement to shut down the freedom of the speech on, it, on the internet, which contains many news outlets that counterbalance the, the power of a united press. Returning to Franklin, he has two solutions. Uh, he thinks the public should be wary of the press's desire to rule it. And he thinks that one way to moderate this is through satire, uh, through criticism and satire of the press. And you see this today. We have so many movies exposing the military, the church, whatever other institution as corrupt. There's never been a movie about the press. They're always heroes saving the republic. Um, finally, Franklin thinks that laws, like we have in the states today, I presume, would protect both citizens and public officials. Um, but he doesn't specify what kind of libel laws. And so with that, I turn to my fellow panelists. Um, I, I want to thank Heritage for uh, inviting me to speak today. Um, it's, it's a real honor to be uh, invited to speak on such a distinguished panel, um, especially to Arthur, and to David, to John Malcolm. Um, so I'm here today to argue against the New York Times versus Sullivan standard. But let me start by saying this. I'm not someone who's a First Amendment critic. I'm not someone who dislikes free speech. To the contrary, the First Amendment is to be celebrated. It's what separates our great nation from most other countries on the planet. 
It's what prevents us from being locked up and thrown into jail when we say things that our government officials don't like. And it's what allows us to assemble here today to have this very debate about the contours of that right. But while the First Amendment guarantees a free press, which is a good thing, it does not guarantee a consequence-free press, which is a bad thing. What the Supreme Court ultimately sanctioned, a press effectively immune from civil defamation liability, what it did when it handed down its decision in New York Times versus Sullivan. So we've heard about this case, the Sullivan case. What did the Supreme Court say in it? It said, to prevail in a civil case for libel, defamation, slander, a public official must show that the speaker acted with actual malice. Those are the key words, actual malice. And what actual malice means is that the defendant speaker knew what he was writing or what he was saying was false, or recklessly disregarded the truth or falsity of that statement. And what is that recklessness standard has been interpreted to mean is that the speaker had a high degree of probability, um, knew with a high degree of prob probability that what he was writing or what he was saying was false. Now this is a subjective standard. This is what was in the mind of the speaker at the time he spoke, not what a reasonable person would know or a reasonable person would understand based on the available facts and evidence at the time. Now, what have courts have said about this actual malice standard? We heard a little bit about what Justice Thomas said. It's almost impossible. Other courts have characterized it as a heavy, often insurmountable burden, a difficult task that extracts a high price from the victims of defamatory falsehood, and many deserving plaintiffs, including some intentionally subjected to injury, will be unable to surmount the barrier of the New York Times test. So where did the Supreme Court come up with this onerous standard? It wasn't the First Amendment. There's simply nothing in the First Amendment's history, text, or structure that warrants the imposition of the Sullivan Actual Malice Standard. The constitutional basis for the Sullivan decision is extremely suspect. Arthur, Arthur has spoken so eloquently today about how the history uh, uh, of some of our founders and their thinking does not support the standard, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the historical arguments. But let me spend a couple of minutes on the text and the structure of the Constitution. The text, the First Amendment, says nothing about what standards must be applied in a civil defamation, a civil libel case. It merely says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. It doesn't talk about civil standards or what juries are supposed to find at all. Well, what about the structure? Is there anything in the structure of our Constitution or in the Bill of Rights that suggests the actual malice standard is appropriate? No. There are other rights and freedoms that are recognized in our Constitution. There's the freedom to religion, the, freedom, uh, the right to keep and bear arms, the right to counsel in certain circumstances. But nobody is arguing, and it would be silly to argue that the clergy or that gun owners or that lawyers cannot be held civilly liable for their wrongful actions absent a showing of malicious intent or recklessness because these rights, the right to religion, the right to keep and bear arms, are so fundamental to our society into our constitutional order. No one's making those arguments like they are with respect to the press. 
So on the question, on the, so on the question of the constitutional soundness of the New York Times versus Sullivan decision, Justice Thomas's recent concurrence in the Cosby case was spot on. Sullivan was a policy-based decision untethered to the text structure or history of the First Amendment. The nine unelected justices on the Warren Court basically made up the actual malice standard, imposing their own policy preferences about what the law should be in civil, in civil defamation cases. And they substituted their own policy preferences for 200 plus years of state defamation common law. But we come to the law as we find it. And New York Times versus Sullivan is the law of the land. It, is, it was, in fact, a policy-based decision. And so today we're here discussing, as a policy matter, whether the actual malice standard is sound and whether it is sound public policy. It's not. Now, what gives me the right to sit up here and, and talk about this standard and why it's good policy or not, I'm a practicing defamation lawyer. I'm a litigator who focuses on defamation cases. And day in and day out, I represent my clients who are being targeted by the media, and I see firsthand how reporters do, and often don't do, their jobs. From gathering or not gathering facts, to cultivating or sometimes fabricating sources, to making decisions about which sources to grant anonymity to, and which targets they're gonna publicly identify, these are the decisions that I see how the media grapple with on a daily basis. For me, and especially for my clients, the debate about Sullivan is decidedly not theoretical. What has splashed across the pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times has a profound impact on reputation. It can and has destroyed lives. It can and has destroyed careers. And it can and has destroyed families. This policy question has a profound impact on the right to one's reputation and the way that we protect it. So getting back to the actual malice standard, how does it operate? As my nine-year-old daughter would say, how does it work in real life, mom? So the Supreme Court and lower courts who have interpreted actual malice rarely say what actual malice is or what conduct constitutes actual malice. Instead, the courts speak about what conduct does not constitute actual malice. So let's start there. A journalist's total failure to investigate before publishing a negative allegation, not actual malice. The fact that a journalist was biased or even motivated by a desire to cause harm or has an economic or political motive, not actual malice. A failure to reach out to the story's uh, subject before publication to give him or her a chance to deny or comment on the story before publication, not actual malice. A failure to follow basic journalistic standards or ethics, not actual malice. The use of knowingly biased sources or anonymous sources, not actual malice. Okay, well that sounds kind of crazy. Um, well. Let's talk about then who this standard applies to and 
given that the courts have talked about how heavy a burden this is and virtually insurmountable standard it applies to, surely this must just be a very narrow set of people the actual malice standard applies to. Well, New York Times versus Sullivan says that it applies to public officials. And you say, okay, well, that makes sense, right? President Trump, Brett Kavanaugh, they have their own access to the media. They can call a press conference and rebut those negative allegations, right? Well, I submit that those high-profile public officials are the very, very rare defamation case. And the Supreme Court has not done a very good job of defining who qualifies as a public official. And that definition has been expanded beyond recognition. Here are some of the other government employees that the lower courts have said are public officials. A taxi cab inspector for Charlotte, North Carolina, public official. A county engineer for Allen County, Ohio, public official. A social worker employed by the Alameda County uh, Social Security Agency, public official. A municipal building inspector for a small city in Connecticut, public official. The sheer number of citizens who work for our federal, state, and local governments is enormous. Now, it's not just public officials this actual malice standard applies to. It's also public figures and this category that the courts have created called limited purpose public figures. Now, this limited purpose public figure category is comprised of the people who, in the opinion of a judge, have thrust themselves into a public controversy and thus made themselves public figures. And this is the category that's most ripe for abuse. Judges strain to find people who, uh, how they have somehow enmeshed themselves in a controversy, and judges define these controversies incredibly broadly. Here are a few examples of people who have been defined as limited purpose public figures. The owner of an apartment building was considered a limited purpose, purpose public figure because by owning an apartment building, he thrust himself into the public controversy concerning the, renting, the rental housing arena. A professional belly dancer was a limited purpose public figure because she welcomed publicity regarding her performances. A female Navy pilot, I love this one, a, a female Navy pilot was a limited purpose public figure with respect to the controversy about women in combat because she chose to be both a woman and a Navy pilot. <laughs> and this one that's near and dear to my heart, an associate dean at the University of Virginia who has no policymaking authority was a limited purpose public figure because she gave a single interview to a student journalism class as part of a student project. Now, this case law on what constitute or what does not constitute actual malice and who must satisfy that actual malice standard has real consequences. The result, most people in this country are going to be considered a limited purpose public figure or public official and 99% of libel cases will fail to satisfy the actual malice standard. Under existing law today, a huge swath of our citizenry has no remedy whatsoever if they are defamed, regardless of how catastrophic the defamation is or how much it hurts their reputation. This is near blanket immunity for the press. And let's be clear, 
media defense lawyers, like my friend Lee here, rely on it daily in counseling their clients. My good friend Kate Bolger, to, to quote her, who's a, a lovely, lovely person and a very talented and respected media defense lawyer, was recently quoted as saying um, that she relies on the Sullivan Standard, quote, every day of her life as a First Amendment litigator and how she advises her clients. And it's not just in litigation that media defense lawyers rely on the actual malice standards. It's how they advise their clients on pre-publication conduct and review before these allegations, before stories are published. For the media, after having been told by their lawyers for so long that basically anything goes, it's not surprising that journalism today and standards have seriously eroded and basically anything goes. So what does a world look like where Sullivan is overturned? Is it doomsday for the press? Would it be the end of our democratic republic because the press would be out of business and politicians and powerful would no longer be held accountable? No, hardly. And let me, let me give you two reasons why. First, the media is largely owned by large for-profit companies, many of whom are publicly traded, who are rational actors who act in their own economic self-interest. They're accountable to their shareholders. And another dirty little secret, they're protected by insurance from libel claims, including legal defense costs. And being held accountable to an insurer or your shareholders after being tagged with a defamation verdict will make you stop and think before you write. Will make, and make you stop and actually do the investigation before you write. And it will impose discipline on journalists and the press. Returning, and the second reason, returning to a pre-Sullivan era means that the press is held, to, held accountable for negligent conduct. That's the standard. Negligent conduct that applied before, before Sullivan was handed down. Now, this is the same standard that any other professional class is held to. Doctors, lawyers, accountants, pilots. If a doctor is negligent in how he performs surgery, that patient can and should sue and receive damages for the injuries that that doctor caused. Now, negligence is not a nothing standard. It simply means that whether, you whether you're held accountable if you fail to take reasonable care or if you created an unreasonable risk. So in practice, going back to the negligence standard, journalists would have to, they would have a duty to investigate before publishing. They'd have to follow, follow professional standards and adhere to a code of ethics. They'd have to reach out to their target for comment before actually publishing. They wouldn't be permitted to blindly rely on what others have said and just repeating those, those claims in the press. They'd make more limited use of anonymous or biased sourcing. And at minimum, they would disclose those biases in their reporting. And they'd have to make an affirmative decision about whether the rush to be first is more important than actually getting it right. <clears throat> Aren't these good things? There's one recent example where I think that rolling back the Sullivan Standard would have made a difference. Just last, just last month, the New York Times breathlessly reported that there were new sexual misconduct allegations that had, emer that had emerged about Brett Kavanaugh's time uh, at Yale. 
Yet in the Times initial reporting, and I'm, I'm only picking on the New York Times because Lee, is, uh, Lee represents the New York Times. Um, yet in the New York Times initial reporting on the topic, the paper of record completely omitted the fact that the woman who was supposedly the victim of this misconduct doesn't even remember the incident, and that she declined to be interviewed on this reporting, this topic. That was a serious lapse of journalistic standards to omit these important facts that would have given readers a more fulsome perspective on the allegations themselves. And under a pre-Sullivan world, I suspect they would not have been omitted. So I want to finish today by coming back to the original question of the panel. Should the press be restrained? Yikes. What a loaded question. Restrained harkens up these images of reporters in handcuffs. And let me be clear, I am not in favor of imposing criminal liability for defamation. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> you can quote me on that way. That's not off the record. Um, should the press be restrained also raises another important question. Restrained by whom? So I don't really love the way that question is framed. But let me answer it this way. We wanted a big turnout in our defense. <laughs> I do believe press accountability is incredibly important. A free but responsible press is vital to our democratic republic. It's vital to an informed electorate. A responsible press is one that is self-restrained. Rational actors behave in a way to avoid negative consequences, both social and economic. The press has run amok, due in no small part to the fact that there are zero consequences for its misconduct. Trust and confidence in the press is at an all-time low. The specter of real civil liability with real economic damages, if those lawyers like Lee and my friend Kate in the confines of their attorney-client privilege conversations with their clients, told their clients, slow down, take more time, there's real economic risk here, that would be a good thing for everyone. It's good for the media because it creates more accurate coverage, which in turn creates greater trust and faith in the press by the people. And it becomes much harder to dismiss the media with a, with a hashtag like, fake news. Overturning Sullivan creates a more self-restrained press, a more responsible press, and yes, a free press, not the consequence-free press that the Supreme Court has left us with in the wake of New York Times versus Sullivan. Thank you. Good afternoon. I speak to you today operating under a number of disadvantages. <laughs> First, I suspect that many of you have already made up your minds on the question we're debating, should the press be restrained, and that I am facing an uphill battle to convince you that it should not, at least any further than it already is. Second, although I speak last today, my remarks were of necessity drafted before I was made privy to exactly what either Libby or Arthur was going to say. As a result, while I will offer my general perspectives on the issue, please forgive me if in doing so, I do not respond directly to one or another of their arguments. In the limited time I have, I'd like to emphasize three points. One about history, one about reality, and one about constitutional law. 
And I'd like to do so largely by invoking the words and insights of others, words and insights with which I happen to agree. First, history. Arthur has, as I suspected he would, said a great deal about history, invoking the writings of the framers, especially Franklin, to the effect that the press of his time was irresponsible and ought to be restrained by, among other things, libel laws. I don't deny that such writings exist. The framers were, above all else, politicians, and I'm not aware of a single politician who doesn't think the press ought to be restrained when it is critical of him, just as I am unaware of a politician who doesn't champion the freedom of the press to criticize her opponents. To the extent history matters in this debate, and I will shortly say a few words about the extent to which it should, I commend to you the following rendition of what I submit is the history most relevant to the question before us. That is the lesson to be drawn from the great controversy over the Sedition Act of 1798, which first crystallized the national awareness of the central meaning of the First Amendment. That statute made it a crime punishable by a $5,000 fine and five years in prison, and I quote, if any person shall write, print, or utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writing or writing against the government of the United States or either House of the Congress or the President with intent to defame or to bring them or either of them into contempt or disrepute. The act was vigorously condemned as unconstitutional in an attack joined in by Jefferson and Madison. Their premise was that the Constitution created a form of government under which the people, not the government, possessed the absolute sovereignty. In a debate in the House of Representatives, Madison said, if we advert to the nature of Republican government, we shall find that the censorial power is in the people over the government and not in the government over the people. Of the exercise of that power by the press, he said, in every state probably in the Union, the press has exerted a freedom in canvassing the merits and measures of public men of every description, which has not been confined to the strict limits of the common law. On this footing, the freedom of the press has stood and on this foundation, it yet stands. Although the Sedition Act was never tested in the Supreme Court, the attack upon its validity carried the day in the court of history. Fines levied in its prosecution were repaid by act of Congress on the ground that it was unconstitutional. Calhoun, reporting to the Senate on February 4th, 1836, assumed that its invalidity was a matter, and I quote, which no one now doubts. Jefferson, as president, pardoned those who had been convicted and sentenced under the act and remitted their fines, stating, I discharged every person under punishment or prosecution under the sedition law because I consider and now consider the law to be a nullity, as absolute and palpable as if Congress had ordered us to fall down and worship a golden image. These views reflect a broad consensus that the act, because of the restraint it imposed upon criticism of government and public officials, was inconsistent with the First Amendment. And there is no force in the argument that the constitutional limits implicit in the history of the Sedition Act apply only to Congress and not to the states. It is true that the First Amendment was originally addressed only to action by the federal government, and that Jefferson, for one, while denying the power of Congress to control the freedom of the press, recognized such a power in the states. But this distinction was eliminated with the adoption of the 14th Amendment and the application to the states of the First Amendment's restrictions. Those words, as many of you have probably recognized, were written by Justice William J. Brennan, Jr. for unanimous Supreme Court in New York Times versus Sullivan. They remain, in my judgment, as accurate a summary of the relevant constitutional history today 
as he, they did when he wrote them more than 50 years ago. Next, I'd like to say a word about reality. Libby has, as I suspected she would, we've known and litigated against each other for a very long time, <laughs> painted for you a picture of an irresponsible and all-powerful press. See, I knew what she was going to say. <laughs> I respectfully dissent from that view. From my perspective, we live, as we often do, in perilous times, times in which the importance of a free press is as apparent as it was when Madison drafted the First Amendment and opposed the Sedition Act. Allow me to endorse the perspective of another contemporary observer. Let me start by stating the obvious. The media aren't perfect. It makes mistakes. It has blind spots. It sometimes drives people crazy. But the free press is foundational to a healthy democracy and arguably the most important tool we have as citizens. It empowers the public by providing the information we need to elect leaders and the continuing oversight to keep them honest. It bears witness to our moments of tragedy and triumph and provides the shared baseline of common facts and information that bind communities together. Since assuming office, President Trump has tweeted about fake news nearly 600 times. His most frequent targets are independent news organizations with a deep commitment to reporting fairly and accurately. To be absolutely clear, news organizations are fair game for criticism. Journalism is a human enterprise, and journalists make mistakes. But at least in my experience, the journalists and news organizations that I've been privileged to represent also try to own their mistakes, to correct them, and to rededicate themselves to the highest standards of journalism. But when the president decries fake news, he's not interested in actual mistakes. He's trying to legitimize, to delegitimize real news, dismissing factual and fair reporting as politically motivated fabrications. So when the New York Times reveals his family's financial practices, when the Wall Street Journal reveals money paid to a porn star, when the Washington Post reveals his personal foundation's dealings, he can sidestep accountability by simply dismissing the reports as fake news. Even though all of those stories and countless more that, I, that he has labeled false have been confirmed as accurate, there is evidence that his attacks are achieving their intended effect. Those are the words of A.G. Salzberger, the publisher of the New York Times, words with which I wholeheartedly agree. I'd like to focus briefly on one of those intended effects, and that is the response to the president's campaign to open up the libel laws, which is, if we're going to be honest with each other, what brings us here today. I've been litigating libel cases for 40 years, and from where I sit, public officials and other powerful public figures are now instituting libel actions against the press at an unprecedented and deeply troubling rate. From where I sit, the vast majority of those cases have been brought not to secure a compensation for actual injury to reputation, but rather to punish the press for speaking truth to power and to dissuade it from doing so in the future, lest it pay the price of the burdens and enormous expense of litigation, regardless of the merits of the claim. And many of these cases are funded not by the allegedly aggrieved plaintiff, but by wealthy individuals and institutions with ideological or political access to grind and scores to settle. That, at least, is the contemporary reality that I see, and it ought to concern all of us. Which brings me to my last point, and that is constitutional law. At the end of the day, what we're debating here is what the First Amendment to the Constitution means. And the answer to that question, unless you're prepared to overrule Marbury versus Madison, is the job of judges 
including ultimately the justices of the Supreme Court. Allow me one last time to invoke the words of another, this time a distinguished federal judge who has spoken to the issue specifically in the context of the law of defamation. We face today a freshening stream of libel actions, which often seem as much designed to punish writers and publications as to recover damages for real injuries, actions that may threaten the public and constitutional interest in free and frequently rough discussion. Those who step into areas of public dispute, who choose the pleasures and distractions of controversy, must be willing to bear criticism, disparagement, and even wounding assessments. Perhaps it would be better if disputation were conducted in measured phrases and calibrated assessments and with strict avoidance of the ad hominem. Better, that is, if the opinion and editorial pages of the public press were modeled on the Federalist Papers. But that is not the world in which we live, ever have lived, or are ever likely to know. And the law of the First Amendment must not try to make public dispute safe and comfortable for all the participants. That would only stifle the debate. The American press is extraordinarily free and vigorous, as it should be. It should be not because it is free of inaccuracy, oversimplification, and bias, but because the alternative to that freedom is worse than those failings. Judges given stewardship of a constitutional provision, such as the First Amendment, whose core is known, but whose outer reach and contours are ill-defined, face the never-ending task of discerning the meaning of the provision from one case to the next. There would be little need for judges, and certainly no office for a philosophy of judging, if the boundaries of every constitutional provision were self-evident. They are not. It is the task of the judge in this generation to discern how the framers' values defined in the context of the world they knew apply to the world we know. So it is with defamation. We know very little of the precise intentions of the framers and ratifiers of the speech and press clauses of the First Amendment, but we do know that they gave onto our keeping the value of preserving free expression, and in particular, the preservation of political expression, which is commonly conceded to be the value at the core of those clauses. Perhaps the framers did not envision libel actions as a major threat to that freedom. I may grant that for the sake of the point to be made. But if, over time, the libel action becomes a threat to the central meaning of the First Amendment, why should not judges adapt their doctrines? Why is it different to, revine, revi excuse me, to refine and evolve doctrine here so long as one is faithful to the basic meaning of the amendment than it is to adapt the Fourth Amendment to take account of electronic surveillance, the Commerce Clause to adjust to interstate motor carriage, or the First Amendment to encompass electronic media? I do not believe there is a difference. To say that such matters must be left to the legislature is to say that changes in circumstances must be permitted to render constitutional guarantees meaningless. We must never hesitate to apply old values to new circumstances, whether those circumstances are changes in technology or changes in the impact of traditional common law actions. Sullivan was an instance of the Supreme Court doing precisely this, as Brown versus Board of Education was more generally an example of the court applying an old principle according to a new understanding of a social situation. The important thing, the ultimate consideration, is the constitutional freedom that is given into our keeping. A judge who refuses to see new threats to an established constitutional value and hence provides a crabbed interpretation that robs a provision of its full, fair, and reasonable meaning fails in his judicial duty. 
That duty, I repeat, is to ensure that the powers and freedoms the framers specified are made effective in today's circumstances. The evolution of doctrine to accomplish that end contravenes no principle of judicial restraint. We now face a need similar to that which courts have met in the past. Excuse me. In the past few years, a remarkable upsurge in libel actions, accompanied by a startling inflation of damage awards, has threatened to impose a self-censorship on the press, which can as effectively inhibit debate and criticism as would overt governmental regulation that the First Amendment most certainly would not permit. The only solution to the problem libel actions pose would appear to be close judicial scrutiny to ensure that cases about types of speech and writing essential to a vigorous First Amendment do not reach the jury. Those are the words of the late Judge Robert Bork, himself no stranger to wounding press scrutiny. They are as true today as when he wrote them more than 25 years ago. I commend them to you. Thank you. Before we open it up for questions from the audience, would any of the participants care to respond to any of the other participants? I would like to ask Lee if he could introduce me to some of those litigation funders. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know them personally, but, I, but Peter Thiel is in the phone book. So. <laughs> no, Lee makes the point that you know, there's this vast expansion of libel cases out there that are being funded by nefarious dark money. Um, and, and I'm not aware of them, um, and I would just like to be introduced to them. Um, this gentleman here from the front, please keep your questions brief so we can get to as many of them. Uh, please wait for the mic. Yes. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Having heard Lee describe an upsurge in um, adversary activity against the press, for example, libel claims. <clears throat> it sounds like even without um, a change in the law from a legislature or um, the Supreme Court, consequences are being introduced to the press, and thus the state of uh, play here is moving in a good direction. Um, perhaps even maybe abetted by favorable decisions where judges do not overextend the definition of uh, limited public figure. Um, do you think that's true? Is, are, is this moving naturally in a good direction, or is, are things getting, getting worse, so to speak, with respect to the, the alleged problem of a consequence-free press? Um, I think things are moving in that direction and because of that, I think they're getting worse. Um, my, my problem with Sullivan, which um, it, it, you know, is kind of the mirror image of, of Libby's problem with Sullivan, is that uh, I don't think it provides enough protection because it operates at the wrong end of the litigation process. It, it's a subjective inquiry that often calls for very extensive and time-consuming and, and expensive discovery and then a trial which even if the press wins, it's already been penalized for the expression by the burdens and expense of litigation. Um, so I, I think this phenomenon of, of an increase in the number of libel actions is terribly troubling and, uh, and is already having a, an inhibiting effect on the press. But Libby disagrees, and she'll tell you why. I, I, I do disagree, <laughs> and I think one of the um, positive consequences of overturning Sullivan uh, if that were to be done, 
is that it would open up more access to the court system. And here's the reason being, libel cases are notoriously difficult to win. I think if you were to ask Lee how many cases he sees defamation cases actually get beyond a motion to dismiss that very initial filing where a case is thrown out under Rule 12 of the federal rules, they're very few. Very few cases actually get into discovery, um, and those that do are often thrown out on summary judgment. Um, and the opening up access to the courts by overturning uh, Sullivan, how you get there is that these cases are notoriously hard to win, and there aren't a lot of lawyers who are willing to take them on, and especially on a contingency fee basis. They don't lend themselves easily to figuring out on the front end what a damages award is likely to be and whether the risk in taking on that case is worthwhile. And so by overturning Sullivan, I do think that you would have more suits. I don't think that there is this explosion in libel cases. Um, and even if there is, I certainly don't think there is an explosion of successful libel cases. Um, and so I, I actually think that the, the pendulum has not swung far enough in this respect. Ms. Locke, um, I, I see your point about uh, uh, the, the um, immunity of the press seemingly in horrible cases. One just has to think of Nick Sandman and the Covington boys. But tell me, if it is so that uh, defamation cases so rarely proceed, how is it that National Review has been dragged through legal hell for years uh, by what by any measure would be a public figure, Michael Mann? You know, it's a, it's a good question. It, you know, I'm not, I'm not intimately familiar with the, the legal struggles that the National Review has, has suffered. Um, you know, I have litigated against the New York Times. Lee has represented them on the, um, on the opposite side uh, to me. And, and I know these major media outlets do get lawsuits that are filed against them. But there are procedural protections at very early stages of litigation um, that allow a court to throw out meritless cases. Um, and there are insurance policies that uh, are in play to help fund media companies in their litigation defense costs. Um, and if an award is ever actually uh, achieved in litigation. Um, and so the notion that the press is going to be completely inundated in an, you know, an economic way, or, or is currently being inundated in an economic way, I just don't see that. And you compare it to the real damage that a defamation causes to families and to livelihoods. Um, you know, everyone loves a really free press and a consequence free press when the camera is not pointed at them. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to be a, a huge supporter of, of, of press freedoms when you haven't actually felt that pain. Ilya. Ilya Shapiro from Cato. Uh, Libby, I'm wondering uh, whether to get what, uh, to address the problems that, that, that you noted, whether it's necessary to overturn Sullivan or to have a malice standard that includes gross negligence and recklessness or failure to follow a standard of care akin to other uh, professional tort claims, uh, as well as making sure that public figures are actually public figures or you know, tweaking all of those elements in Sullivan. Maybe it's just that you know 
if the Supreme Court were to take this up, they need to say, well, we mean those things and here's what they mean, rather than the whole structure being improper. That's a great question. I mean, look, as a, I go back to my remarks in, in, my, in my talk, as a constitutional matter, I don't think there is a, a constitutional basis for the Sullivan decision as it was laid out. As a policy matter, are there things, and, and so therefore we end up in a, what is necessarily a policy debate. It was a policy decision, so we're here, let's be very clear about what this is. This is a policy debate about whether the actual malice standard is good or bad. So if we want more judges doing more policy, yes, they could pull back on certain threads. They could define um, who a public figure is more narrowly. Um, you know, they could pull back on that limited purpose public, uh, public figure uh, definition much more substantially. So you could certainly do that, but let's be clear, that would be, that would be judicial policy making, not judges following constitutional law. Uh, you'll get the last question because we need to adjourn, so please. Okay, I have a question for Lee. Um, Two-part question. This is a policy debate. If it were up to you, do you think it's a good thing to eliminate libel laws altogether in the United States, number one? And number two, do you think that every would-be defamation plaintiff should have to show the actual malice standard that the publisher knew or recklessly disregarded uh, the falsity of the statement? Two very good questions. Um, uh, no, I don't think that uh, we should do away with libel law entirely, um, and this gives me a, a, a not terribly stretched hook to, to respond to something Libby just said. Um, in one sense, this is a policy argument. In one sense, it's not. I, the, the remarks that I quoted from Judge Bork are illustrative of this. We all know that um, the First Amendment protects speech. We have to define what speech is. And at one point, the Supreme Court early on said, well, speech doesn't include libel. So that's why we can have libel laws. So then the question is, becomes, what's libel? And what the Supreme Court has done in Sullivan and the cases they came after it is do what judges do, make a reasoned constitutional determination about what, for constitutional purposes, these terms should be defined as. And when they're talking about public figures, what Justice Brennan ultimately said, and he used these words, what he, what he thought the actual malice standard was, was distinguishing the calculated falsehood, the intentional lie on the one hand, which has no business being protected by the First Amendment, even against public officials, and speech that the press did not have an awareness was probably false, when, or anybody, not just the press, did not have an awareness was probably false when they published it, which should be protected against public officials and public figures. So that's, I, I agree with that, and that's, that's my answer to your first, the first question. And the second question is, again, the courts have drawn a line between public figures and public officials on the one hand and everybody else on the other hand. Um, I, I think reasonable people can differ about where that line needs to be drawn, but that's what judges are there for to draw it. And the Supreme Court has decided that on one side of that line, the private figure only has to prove negligence. Agree. I agree with that. Libby said early in her remarks, and I, I, I just have to take issue with this one little thing, um, is that before Sullivan there was a negligence standard. That's not true. Before Sullivan it was strict liability. There was no negligence standard. The, the defamation was a strict liability tort. Um, so 
in, in the Gertz case, the Supreme Court went a fair measure in saying even public figures have to, even private figures have to prove some level of fault. And I'm comfortable with that. I'm very sorry to cut it short, but we have to adjourn. Please thank me, join me thanking the panelists. Thank you. Since, since I'm not a lawyer, can you tell me what is strict liability as opposed to negligence? Uh, it